Good morning. My name is Dane. I'm one of the pastors here at VCC. And um, when I was young, I remember asking my dad this question. We were on vacation. I don't remember where. I was quite young. We were in a hotel room. That's what I remember. And I asked my dad, Dad, what does God look like? Um, and I think my you know, right brain remembers this interaction because my dad's eyes were like, you know, um, he was not a Christian yet. Um, and so it was a sort of, I think, deer in the headlights moment for him, you know. And he responded with, well, what do you think God looks like? <laughs> Brilliant stalling maneuver, right? And I was like, well, I imagine God as this old man and he's up in the clouds and he has a beard and he has these these pointy elf shoes. I don't know why that got in there. Uh, some Santa mix-up thing happening. I don't know. Um, and I was like, and I imagine he's sitting on the clouds and there are these two big joysticks. You know what joysticks are from like video games, you know, where you control. Uh, and, and that he's got these two joysticks and he controls everything from, from those. And my dad was like, well, then that's what God looks like. <laughs> he's an agnostic. Give him a break, you know. Um, and... You know, so that was my image of God, a, an old man on the clouds with some, some joysticks controlling everybody. And, and wouldn't it be great if we grew out of that? <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be great if we left those silly pagan, you know, views of God that we have? I mean, some of us, gosh, decades in church and reading so many books and still somehow in our, in our bones or in our guts is a, is a sort of silly image of God like that. And how many people scarcely even believe in God at all because they've thrown out that silly image of God? Uh, in scripture, you might say there's two kinds of fools, <laughs> doubting fools and believing fools. Doubting fools and believing fools. Uh, the believing fool worships false gods. They believe, but they believe in a false god. Worship a false god. That's foolish. Um, if you're going to worship, worship the real thing, you know. Uh, and the second kind of fool you might call the doubting fool. This is the one the Psalms say in his heart says, there's no God. There's no God. Like, it's just a bunch of psychological projections, bad Santa stuff, you know. Nobody's watching, right? Nobody's going to judge us in the end. Nobody needs to give an account. Just, ugh, whatever. And our Psalm today, Psalm 2, is a warning to both kinds of fools, to doubting fools and to believing fools. We'll be spending Advent in the Psalms, in the Psalms looking specifically at some of the more famous Messianic Psalms, not Messianic Psalms, but Messianic Psalms, okay? uh, Messiah is in there. They're the Psalms that uh, point us forward very, or predict even, this coming king, this son of David, who Christians, of course, believe to be Jesus Christ. And Psalm 2 is our first such messianic psalm. And I don't know if you were listening closely when Nick and Jenna were reading, but it's kind of hardcore, right? <laughs> it's like, kiss the son lest he be angrish, ang angrish. I just mixed angry and perish. That's a good word. Yeah, lest he be angry and you die, you know? He's going to smash you like a potter's vessel. It's kind of like, whoa, it's kind of intense, right? Um, so it's a warning. It's a warning psalm. And uh, Psalm 1 and 2 
are linked, actually. Psalm 1 and 2 are linked with the word blessed. Blessed, blessing. Um, so Psalm 1 begins with blessed is the man, blessed is the one, you know, who's not spending his time with the wicked, with the scoffers, with sinners. Like he's not, he's not in those comment sections anymore, okay? He's not in those chat rooms. That's not where he's hanging out. He's not in the meeting after the meeting grumbling and conspiring, okay? That's not where the blessing is is, the blessed one is. And then Psalm 2 ends with blessed again. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Who is him? This is the, the coming king, the coming king. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And to be blessed in scripture is not to live a rich, easy, comfortable life necessarily. To be blessed is to live a happy, meaningful, and fruitful life. A fruitful life, to be abundant, to be blessed. Um, And the Psalms are meant to lead us into a blessed life, but we gotta go in through the door. And Psalm 1 and 2, you might say, are like two big doors that lead us into the Psalms. That lead us into the Psalms. So the blessing at the end of Psalm 2, by the way, it comes as a bit of a surprise, right? Because it's just like, Again, real hardcore, like a hardcore warning psalm. And then suddenly, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And we ought to read it that way. We ought to be kind of surprised by it. um, Because after all, the, the happily ever after that we have in our faith is not something we manage. It's not something we, that is of our own making. We need some warning. Uh, We need to be warned every now and then. In fact, Paul even said, this is in Colossians, that his, his, his aim, like what he was doing as a preacher, he says, was to warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom that he might present everyone mature in Christ. That was his goal, to warn and to teach. So my hope is to warn you this morning and to teach you to read this psalm well, uh, that if you've wandered into the thickets of the doubting fool or the believing fool, that I might goad you back into the path to spiritual maturity in Jesus Christ, to the blessing of taking refuge in him. So part one, I like how he's been doing this, so I'm gonna do it too. Part one, okay? Part one, the rebellion. It opens like this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Or my translation, what's all the fuss, okay? Like, what is all this racket? Why are you mad, okay? Why are you mad? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It says, the kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. They're having a meeting, okay? And the meeting, the grumbling, the conspiring is against the Lord God and his anointed. That's where we get our word Messiah from the Hebrew and Christ from the Greek. The Lord and his Christ, Okay, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let's separate father and son and cast their cords away from us. Sometimes this language is used like breaking or throwing off a yoke, right? You have a yoke on some oxen. Let's get that thing off of us. Cast their cords away from us. So the original context is something like this, all right? God has appointed a king in Israel. Not Israel's chosen king. Who is that? Saul. 
Yeah, it didn't go so well. We just learned about that. This is God's king, God's anointed, David and his sons. God has appointed a king. It's his king. And Israel's neighbors, the nations who've been conquered, who've been subdued by this king, they grumble and conspire to overthrow the king. This happens a lot. We don't know the exact context, like when this was written, but a great example in 2 Samuel, for example, when the king of Ammon and the king of Syria, they get together, they have a meeting, and they try and overthrow David. It'd be a great example. It backfires, of course. In other words, there is this bond that exists. There's a bond that exists between God, between David and his sons, And this bond includes Israel and the nations. They're all in a bind together. They're all bound up together, okay? Remember, you know, we kind of get in this psalm, it's like, I'm going to break the nations. Okay, we'll get there. But remember, what's God's original intention with the nations? Genesis 12, to bless the nations, right? He chooses Abraham and says, through you, he makes this promise. You're going to have a lot of kids, and they're going to have a lot of kids. It's going to be like more than the stars and sand, okay? Tons of kids. And through your family, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to bless the nations. Well, now David becomes king, and his sons are to be king of this nation. And so you might think of David's charge like this. David is to remain loyal to God, to Yahweh, to not worship other gods, but to be loyal, to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love his neighbors as himself. The Lord, the king, Israel, and the neighbors are all bound up together. They're they're in a bind, okay? They're in in a bind. They're bound up in what the prophet Hosea calls cords of compassion. Cords of compassion. That's how God leads us. But do the nations like this arrangement? <laughs> do they like being in this bind? No, they do not. They want to break the bond. They want to, in the words of Jeremiah, throw off the yoke. They see these cords of compassion as chains, and they want to break the chains. They want to humiliate and utterly destroy God's king. Right? You see that all over the Psalms. You know, there's no salvation for him in God. They want to they break this thing up, throw off the chains. It's, it's mutiny, it's rebellion, right? The nations just, they want to do as they see fit. They want to run their own little kingdoms like we do. They want to do what they want. Get your hands off me, God. That's what the nations are grumbling and complaining about. So how, how will God respond to this mutiny? How will God respond to this rebellion Part two, heaven responds. First, God will respond by laughing, (laughs) okay? Laughing. He who sits, that's enthroned, right? In the heavens, that's God, laughs, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, I'm sure, you know, in the moment, whatever this rebellion was, it was very scary and serious business, right? I mean, there was war and politics and intrigue and death and all that stuff. But the psalmist wants us to like zoom out for a second, you know, get a proper view on this thing. Uh, They're trying to overthrow this king. Whose king is this? God's king, okay. So this isn't just a rebellion against Zion, okay. What is Zion? We see that word all the time. Uh, The Jewish scholar Robert Alter uh, describes Zion this way. 
a modest mountain on the crest of which sits Jerusalem, a modest fortified town, the capital of a rather small kingdom. Zion's actually a pretty small hill. Jerusalem's not super impressive as a city at this time, right? And so this is not, though, just a rebellion against the little town of Jerusalem. This is God's king. This is God's hill, okay? This is a rebellion against heaven. And so it's sort of darkly Monty Python funny, you know? It's comical. It's rebelling against heaven. I mean, think about that, you know? You might as well try and, like, I don't know, colonize another galaxy with a rocket ship made of cardboard and glue. Like, what do you, what? You can't rebel against heaven. That's silliness. It's laughable, okay? But the laughter does quickly turn to anger. God himself speaks in verse 6, the very center of the 12 verses of the psalm. God speaks, and it says he speaks in anger. He speaks in fury that will terrify the rebels. He speaks in his wrath, and what does he say? Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is the word of the Lord. God's response to foolish, laughable rebellion is this. I have set my king on my holy hill. Where do we see God's anger? Where do we see God's wrath? In his king, enthroned on his hill. Hmm. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 28. Um, This is uh, a prayer from the first followers of Jesus, and they're being persecuted by the leaders. And it goes like this. Verse 23, when they were released, they, they, um, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And what, when they heard uh, this, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Here's our psalm. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So they're praying. Psalm 2 comes to mind and here's their interpretation of Psalm 2. For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, it's your king, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And then they go on to pray for boldness. So do you see? Do you see the first followers of Jesus, they saw this psalm being fulfilled just weeks before, right? This psalm was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the son of David. The rulers of Israel, who's that? King Herod and Pontius Pilate, ruler of the Gentiles, right? They took counsel together. They conspired together against the Lord and his Christ, and they crucified the son of God. And what did the peoples 
cry out, if you're really the king, the son of God, take yourself down from the cross. He saved others. He can't even save himself, right? They're mocking him. But what they didn't understand was that this was the moment that God was setting his king on his holy hill. God was enthroning his son on the cross. Paul says if they understood, they wouldn't have done it. (laughs) They wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But this moment, in fact, was the moment, it says in Colossians, that God actually disarmed the rulers, that he defeated the rulers. This was God's great victory. They thought it was their victory. It was God's victory. Remember in John how Jesus points forward to his cross as the moment he will be lifted up, enthroned, exalted. The cross is God's throne. So God's righteous anger, his fearful response to mutiny and rebellion is the cross. God speaks here in the center of the psalm, and what is his word? His word is the word of the cross. God's response is the cross. God's wrath, God's anger, God's fury. What does that mean? What do we see? It's here in his son crucified on Calvary's hill hanging dead. This is foolishness. This was folly to the Greek philosophers. This was scandalous. This was offensive to the Jewish leaders. But to us who are being saved, both Jew and Greek, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, it's the power and the wisdom of God. Amen? I think we need to sit with this strangeness a little bit here because we're not going to read the rest of the psalm very well unless we see the the cross with crystal clarity here in this verse 6. You've probably heard this phrase. Maybe you've said it to yourself. God is on the throne. You ever heard that? Your like relative probably said it on Facebook or maybe you did, you know, like things are weird or whatever. Well, God's still on the throne. Just remember, God's still on the throne. Um, and that's, that's uh, what we usually mean by that is like God's in control. God's still in control. Is that true? Yes. Okay, don't get it twisted. What did Acts 4 say, right? The cross was what God's plan had predestined to take place. Okay, God was in control. Even though they thought they were in control, God was in control. But so often when we say this, God's on the throne, God's still on the throne, we mean to reassure ourselves that things are fine. (laughs) Right? Sometimes we even use this phrase to like baptize our own passivity. Maybe even use God's name in vain a little bit. Like I don't want to look at that thing. (laughs) that difficult thing happening over in that dark part of the world or even just a little bit down 580 or I don't want to look at this thing down going on in me because God's on the throne, it'll be fine. The gospel is not that things are fine, (laughs) okay? That is not the gospel. The gospel is not that things are fine. It's precisely not that. What if instead of this phrase, we said this, God is on the cross, Anytime there is evil, there is suffering, where is God? God is suffering the weight of evil. Pastor Jake told me a chilling story this week from uh, Elie Wiesel's book, Night, his classic book, where they were hanging, you know, some collaborators against the Nazis in a camp, and they were forced to watch, and one was just a young boy, and it took him 30 minutes to die. He was light. 
and they're just looking into his face as he's dying, and someone shouts out, where is God? And Elie Wiesel said, a, a voice within him said, on the gallows, on the gallows. God is on the cross. God is suffering the weight of evil. Is it finished? Yes, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus was taken down from the cross. He was put in a tomb. He rose from the tomb. He ascended. He is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. But where is his body? Where is the body of Christ on earth suffering all over the world? Jesus himself told us when we show mercy to the suffering, who do we show mercy to? Him. Where is God? God is on the cross. God's response to evil and suffering is to suffer the weight, the sting of evil. And he suffers in us. Friend, you know, are you suffering mentally? Are you suffering with chronic pain? Are you suffering physically? Are you suffering relationally? Do you know God is near to you in your suffering? Would you turn to God? Would you turn to the cross, contemplate the cross in your suffering? Would you turn would you turn to him in your suffering? He's not far away with the joysticks, being like, you get big baby, get it together. He's with you, he's near you. That's our hope. That's our hope. Would you turn to him? Because if you don't turn to him, that's what the rest of the psalm is all about. It's not pretty. Part three, the king's speech. So then this next stanza, the anointed one, verses seven through nine, Christ himself speaks. And what he speaks, this is interesting, caught this at the last minute, is not his own words. What he speaks is what he heard the Father say to him. Isn't that cool? And he says this, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. I will give the nations to you. And the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break, or sometimes this is translated rule, very similar word in Hebrew. You shall break them with a rod of iron, this is the nations, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Hardcore, right? So remember, this was not fulfilled in David or Solomon or any king of Israel or Judah. This was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. When did Jesus say, or sorry, when did the father say to Jesus, this is my son? Don't whisper it, say it. Baptism, yeah, another time. In the mountain, transfiguration, yeah, yeah. So the first time, right, Jesus goes and identifies with a bunch of sinners, gets into that dirty water. And, and at that moment, God said, this is my son. This is the one who will drown in the sins of the world. And then later on the Mount of Transfiguration, the one rejected by the world is revealed to be the Son of God. This is my Son. Listen to him. And one more really cool moment, Kyle Newman pointed this out to me, that the, then at the crucifixion, the, the soldier says, surely this is the Son of God. He has eyes to see who this one is. Listen to him. So after this coronation, he's enthroned on the cross. What are his final words after he has risen in the Gospel of Matthew? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded of you. Now, just read that in light of verse 8, right? Ask and I'll give the nations to you, king. Right? And now Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth. Go, I have sheep. I have people in every nation. Go. Go. And our job as his sheep, as his people, is simply to obey him. That's our job, to obey him. And when asked, tell others that he's their king too. Jesus is their king too. Jesus is Lord. That's the gospel. That's our good news. And it's not a popular message. (laughs) Okay? It's not a popular message. I don't need to tell you that. You know? Tell someone, according to uh, your faith, their body and their money belongs to King Jesus. And he gets to say what they do with those things. That's not popular on the right or the left, is it? No? Right? Your body and your money belong to King Jesus. That's not a popular message, but that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the church has lived that without hypocrisy, that's key. (laughs) When the church has lived that without hypocrisy, power, revival, persecution breaks out. Read Acts 4. Church doesn't need much strategy when they live that out. Jesus is the king, and we are his subjects. At the end of the day, we are in service or in rebellion. Or to shift the metaphor, he's the shepherd, and we are his sheep. And it says in Psalm 2, he has an iron rod, okay, a scepter. And that rod can bring comfort. Have you read Psalm 23? His rod and his staff, they comfort me, right? Not such a comfort to the rebels. The rod, they don't like the rod, okay? It's kind of like the strong arms of a father. Don't think my arms. Think like Pastor Joe's arms, okay? Strong arms of a father. is a comfort to his children who want to wrestle with him, but a terror to intruders who do not want to wrestle with him, okay? Some of you are like, oh, this is just hard. Stick with me, stick with me. Brief word, though, before we move to part four on the potter's vessel, this image. Uh, Psalm 2 didn't just make this up. This is in... Jeremiah. Okay, so remember, Jeremiah 5 is where we get the image of the the bond that's broken, that they want to break. The image of the potter's vessel comes from Jeremiah 19. It's kind of a fun little story. Um, God tells the prophet Jeremiah to go interrupt the elders, the rulers, at their meeting at, at the gate. And uh, he says, before you do that, I want you to, to go to the store. I don't know if they had stores or what, but like buy a little... Um, flask made of clay, a little earthenware vessel, okay? And uh, go get the elders and bring them then over to the town dump, okay? And then stand at the gate of the town dump and get their attention, hold up the little pot and smash it onto the ground. My two-year-old did this with a snow globe last weekend, no joke. Uh, (laughs) I wasn't home, sorry, Brittany. Um, And so, but just smash it completely and say, that if you do not turn and repent of the wickedness that you are engaging in against the poor and against the downtrodden in Israel, if you do not turn this around, then I'm going to smash you like this, or I'm going to smash this city, like I smashed this pot, right? 
The point is totally beyond repair, totally beyond healing. I don't care if you know the Japanese art of kintsugi and you know how to repair pots. I mean, you smash this thing completely, okay? Like, Brittany wasn't like, we're just going to monkey glue the snow globe. You know, it was done. It was done. That's the warning, completely broken, beyond healing, beyond repair. And that brings us to the final part of the psalm, a warning and an invitation, part four. Now, therefore... O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Fear and trembling and rejoicing. Kiss the sun. This is a tricky translation. It could literally be pay homage with sincerity. But to who? The sun. Okay, the king. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For the king's wrath is quickly kindled. He gets angry in a hurry. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So it's, you know, be smart about this, rebels. You're rebelling against heaven. You're not going to (laughs) win. Right? Let's be smart. Serve him with fear and trembling and joy, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Lest you be shattered beyond Mending like the snow globe. Submit to him, serve him, follow him, love him or else. As Moses might put it, I I put before you today blessing and cursing. You choose. You choose. Now, the simplest and most obvious application of Psalm 2 is to those in positions of power who are using their power to oppress to cause suffering. I mean, that's, you know, universally where the imagery comes from in Jeremiah. Um, it's, you know, about the oppress or the, the strong using their power to oppress the weak. And we're to see here to oppress the weak is to oppress Christ. Not only does God see, God is on the cross. God is in their suffering. What you do to them, you do to him. He suffers under that weight. And so there will be an account that has to be given. So this is actually a great psalm of hope, especially for our brothers and sisters around the world suffering persecution. It sounds hardcore to them. uh, To us, it sounds hopeful (laughs) to many of them. We can pray Psalm 2 on behalf of our persecuted brothers and sisters, praying for boldness for them, that they might know that their Redeemer lives and his name is Jesus Christ. And he sees, he sees. However, we can't just be like, all right, you know, (laughs) Uh, because it stands as a warning and an invitation to every single one of us. We all have our little spheres of influence. We all rule our little kingdoms. We all have our gardens to tend. And by nature, in our flesh, we would like God to keep his hands off. (laughs) We want to rule our own kingdoms the way we see fit. So I want you to just listen to this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Fear, trembling, rejoicing. I want you to listen to some of the similarity of language here. Love this text. Therefore, my beloved. So Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed Jesus, so now, not only in my presence, don't just obey because I was watching, But much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will 
and to work for his good pleasure. What does this look like? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, fighting, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I, Paul, may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, which is a fancy way of saying, even if I die, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. God is on the cross. Guys, I, I was excited to preach, uh, and I, I wanted a like warm, fuzzy Christmas message for y'all today. Uh, like a little hot cocoa in your hands, okay? Um, but I am determined, like Paul, to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Because that's our hope. Peter, filled with the Spirit on Pentecost, man, he looked him right in the eye and he said, you crucified the Son of God. You crucified the Son of God. And the proper response was they were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And what did he say? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so if you've not been baptized, talk to a pastor, talk to me, talk to Lisa at Connections, and we will baptize you on New Year's Eve. Amen? Okay. If, that, if you haven't been baptized, don't mess around. Get yourself saved. Okay, I remember I was 18 years old. I got baptized here. I was riding around on my bike going, I'm getting saved today. And I was being funny, but it was true. Get yourself baptized if you believe. But, you know, presumably that's what you do. Believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you have been baptized, even if you've wandered away, the whole rest of the thing, the rest of your life is live out your baptism. Carry your cross. Work out your salvation, Paul says, with fear and trembling. It involves fear and trembling and rejoicing, just like we see in Psalm 2. And specifically, it involves this really painful process I'm still very much in the midst of, of giving up grumbling, complaining, and fighting, disputing. Why? Because if your life, you know, if you're in those, if you're in those common threads still, if you're spending a lot of time in those meetings, grumbling and complaining and fighting, it shows you haven't really died much yet with Christ. <laughs> you still think you're owed more than the Son of God who was crucified in His prime. I wanted a nice Christmas message this morning. I've got a ways to go myself. Okay, a couple more things, then we'll quit. Uh, what's this about his wrath being quickly kindled? Did you read that and you're like, wait, what? Doesn't it say like a lot that God is slow to anger? Isn't that sort of like in the key verse in the Old Testament, he's slow to anger? What's this about the king's wrath being quickly kindled? I had to think about this for a second. I'm like, are we back to the, to the you know, capricious God with the joysticks? Just like, kill him, you know, like what's happening here? Um, yes, God is slow to anger. Think of the millennia that he endured of rebellion before sending his son at the proper time. Think of the millennia of rebellion 
that he is enduring even now before coming again and making all things new. But remember, this psalm is teaching us to look to who, look to what, when we want to see what God is like, what he looks like. It's pointing us to look to Jesus, yeah. Jesus, his life and his death. Um, could Jesus be quick to anger? Yeah, yeah. Let's think, when did Jesus get angry? Like literally it says angry, indignant. When did Jesus get angry? Well, number one, he, he got angry at sickness and death, okay? When did he get angry with people? Every time a sinner would come up to him, right? He'd be like, ah, get out of here, you know? No. Never once are we told that Jesus got angry with a sinner. Do you know that? Tax collector, prostitute, addict. Never once, never once does Jesus get angry with a sinner. I think some of you need to hear that. That's why I called the sermon, Is God Angry With Me? Some of you, you are slow to go to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in your time of need because you think God is angry with you. If you have any conviction, guilt, sadness, frustration, loneliness, whatever, with your sin, where else are you going to go? Go to him. He's not angry with you. When does Jesus get angry with people? Uh, two occasions. One is he's in, the, he's in the place of worship, and there's a man there who needs healing. And he looks around at the leaders, the Pharisees, the rulers of the synagogue. You remember this? And he says, is it lawful for me to heal him? And they're like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. <laughs> and he gets mad, and he heals the guy. One other time, Jesus gets angry, is when his own disciples block the kids from coming to him. <laughs> they thought he was too important for kids. They thought they were too important for kids, and they were blocking little ones from the blessing of being near Jesus. Jesus' disciples were becoming Pharisees, and that made him mad. Jesus gets mad at the forces of sickness and death that destroy human beings, and he gets mad when we align ourselves with those forces. This is becoming just good news to me that Jesus is quick to anger. Jesus, like, when confronted with wrong, he doesn't, like, hem and haw and equivocate, you know, like, let me think about it. He just, he calls it wrong immediately. He calls it wrong immediately. He's quick to anger, and this is good news. So, no. God does not angrily zap us with lightning or hit us with rods. Amen? <laughs> it's worse than that. Uh, <laughs> Romans 1 says he, he will sadly give us over to the consequences of our own sin. If we try and break the yoke, cast it off, the attempt will break us. When we refuse to do the only thing he asks us to do, which is carry our cross, when we refuse to carry our cross... We refuse to ask for the help we need, refuse to come to the light, refuse to help others, then yes, the weight of our cross will crush us. So be warned, be wise. If you continue to resist reality, if you hide, in the words of John, if you refuse to come to the light, you will perish in the way, as Psalm 2 says. You will perish in the way. But, as John says, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but will have eternal Life. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's hope. Not everything is fine. Your depression's not fine. Your anxiety is not fine. Your loneliness isn't fine. Your 
betrayal is not fine. Your divorce is not fine. Your loss, your grief, it's not fine. It's not fine. But we can choose hope in the midst of whatever we're going through by choosing to forego grumbling, forego fighting, because we know that God is with us in those things and will be with us to the end, to the day that he will wipe away every tear and that death will be no more. And so we humbly get the help we need and we help others. We serve. So VCC, what does God look like? What does God look like? Not the joystick God, not no God. Jesus is the image of God. God has spoken and his word is the cross and our cross and therefore we have hope. You might say there's a third type of fool, a, fool, a fool's hope, you know? And there's hope even for the rebels in our life who want nothing to do with all the hypocritical representations of Jesus. There is true hope this morning. 